Well, that's the story, chapter 3. How many of you did your homework and you read chapter 3 of the story? Yeah, yeah, that's good. If you don't have a copy of the story, um, you can grab one on your way out of church. There's a suggested donation of $10 on that. If you don't have $10 but you'll read it, take one, and it's, it's okay. You're not stealing, but you can get that and uh, read along. I can't believe that we're almost to the end of chapter uh, of the entire book of Genesis. So if you've got your Bible with you, and if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 37. I want to just say welcome while you're turning there to anybody who's here for the first time. Thanks for coming today and worshiping here. Uh, fill out the Connect card. It's in your worship folder. And you can drop that in the offering later in the service today, or you can leave it at Connecting Point on your way out. And uh, I hope, how many of you got to go to the open house in, in Theater 9 for our children's class? Isn't that awesome? That is our first cannonball success. We set this goal out there of opening up another theater for our children's classroom space, and it's open, and it's awesome. So I hope you got to check that out. Please don't go down there after church unless you've got a kid down there. It's already crowded enough down there, but I hope you got to see that. Well, we've been, as we've been going through the story for the last few weeks, and as hopefully you've been reading along. If you've not, please read. Read it. It's really important. We're going to go through the whole story of the Bible. We've understood that the Bible, even though it's a collection of all these different books, written at different times by different people. This, there's one story that ties all this together. It's the story of what God is doing in the world, where he started, and we call it the upper story, where it began and where it's going, and there is a, a theme that unites all of this Bible. And what we realize, too, is that the people who live long ago and they're talked about in the Bible, we think of that as so distant and removed from our lives, but they're really not. They're, we call them the lower story, the story that happens at the six-foot level. All of our lower stories, all of their stories come together to make the upper story that God is telling with this creation and where it's all headed to. And as we live our lives out, maybe you have a sense of where you think that your story should go. Do you? Do you have goals and dreams and plans and aspirations for your life? you have a sense of the way you think your life ought to turn out? Sometimes it does turn out the way you want it, but sometimes it doesn't. You know, the Bible tells us how the whole story is going to turn out. One of the strongest hints of how the story will end is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And it says there that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So however you think your story should go, the story that God's telling ends well. And there are times when maybe in your life you feel like things are going awesome. And you really believe that verse, and you're like, yes, God does do everything for good, and, and you love him, and you think everything's just amazing, it's on track. And then there are other times in your life where it just changes like that. And you're like, where did this come from? And you start to question because of the difficult things you're going through. Is God really aware of what's going on in my life? Does he really understand what I'm going through? That was certainly true of a guy named Brian Banks. Back in 2002, Brian was a 17-year-old kid living in California, and he had a dream ahead of him that few kids could ever imagine. 17-year-old kid, junior in high school, he was ranked 11th in the nation as a middle linebacker. He already knew where his future was. He was already accepted at USC. He was going to go on a full-ride scholarship. He was going to, after that, be signed on for the, the NFL, just a shoe in. Everything was great in 2002 in Brian's life until one day he was accused of kidnapping and rape. Sentenced five years in prison, after he got out, he spent another five years on parole as a registered sex offender. Uh, he couldn't go to a playground. He couldn't go to a, near a school. He couldn't go to SeaWorld. He had to wear a GPS ankle bracelet to make sure he didn't leave the state. The, the worst part about this 10 years of Brian's life was it was all a false charge. He didn't do anything wrong. Spent 10 years of his life wasted over a false charge. 
everything started looking up for Brian last year in 2012. The girl who accused him admitted to a private detective who was secretly taping their conversation. She made the whole thing up. And then once it started snowballing, she didn't know how to get out of it. And she didn't want to have to turn back in the settlement that they received from the school that they both went to. So with this tape and with some other things, they were able to go back to the same judge that 10 years ago, or back in 2002, convicted Brian and sentenced him. And that same judge wrote the, the letter of uh, exoneration, completely cleared of all charges. 2012, all that happened. Just read last week that, uh, or maybe it was a few weeks ago, actually, Brian was actually signed with the Atlanta Falcons. So you look at that. His life in 2002, everything is looking up. It's looking awesome. In 2013, everything is actually where he hoped it would be. Man, what a roller coaster ride in between, right? I was thinking, like, if it was me, what would I be thinking? If I knew I'm in prison for something I did not do, and I'm saying, what's his frame of mind? I actually found something where he was interviewed, and he said, you know, people get angry when they hear my story, and that's understandable because there's a lot of things to be bitter and resentful about in there. But he said, what difference would it make if I spent 10 years being bitter and angry? It wouldn't change anything. It's a great attitude. You know, as, as you think about your life, and maybe you think about the inevitable lows that come in your life, maybe, maybe you get to a point where you're just focused and fixated on the problems. You look at all the things that are going wrong, and even though the Bible says God does work all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, maybe you go, I just don't see it. And God's going, hey, look at me. And God is saying, come on, quit paying attention to your circumstances and start looking at the big story that I'm telling. As we continue the story in chapter 3 of the story, we're going to start in Genesis 37. We're going to look at the life of another guy who knows what it is to experience a lot of trouble, Joseph. You saw his story just a few minutes ago. Joseph was a guy who had a dream given to him by God very early on in his life. It was a dream of something awesome that would happen in his future. So here is a 17-year-old kid. He's got this dream that God's given him of something in his future. Everything's looking great. But he, too, like Brian Banks and like so many of us, just went through this roller coaster ride of things that happened in his life in the in-between. And Joseph was a guy, if anybody had a reason to be bitter, and resentful about things that happened in his life, it would have been Joseph, and yet he didn't. Now, as we look at Joseph's story, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I want to give you one of the principles that kind of arise out of his life, and I want to, even before we get into his life, tell you this, and I know that as you look at this, you may say that's just really simple, but it's true. Something that we learn from Joseph's life is that trouble is inevitable. Trouble in life is inevitable. I know it's simplistic, but many times we forget that, especially when things are good. Trouble in life is inevitable. Joseph's trouble started early in his life with his family. He experienced trouble in his family. How many of you here in the room right now, raise your hand, how many of you are oldest children? You're the oldest kid in your family? Yeah. You're the ones that your parents experimented on to try to figure it out and get it right. But that's okay because oldest children are intelligent and strong and they're leaders and resilient. They can, I'm an oldest child. <laughs> how many of you are middle kids? Go ahead, express your frustration right now. You never got noticed. You never got away with anything because your parents had it dialed in by the time you came along. You never got away with anything. It reminds me of a story I heard about a salesman who was going door-to-door -door selling things years ago, obviously, because they don't do that much anymore. But salesman goes and he knocks on a door. Ten-year-old boy answers the door, puffing on a cigar. Salesman said, son, is your mama home? The boy went, what do you think? <laughs> you middle kids, you, you don't get your picture taken. You don't get 
away with anything, you never get. Notice my wife is the middle child. She's like, yeah, it's just true. We're the ones who are trying to make the peace all the time. How many of you are the baby in the family? Bunch of spoiled little. You got away with everything. You got everything. There's no resentment here, though. I'm good with that. Joseph, in our story, was the baby of the family. At this point, he was eventually not the baby anymore, but he's the 11th out of what would be 12 boys. He's the youngest kid in his family. His dad was Jacob, or Israel, as we read in the text. His grandpa was Isaac. His great-grandpa was Abraham, the one we talked about last week. And we pick up his story, and we read about his trouble in his family. It starts in Genesis 37, starting in verse 3. This will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible open to this. It said, Now Israel, that's Jacob, his dad, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Just imagine being Joseph here. He's 17 years old. God gives him this dream. You're the youngest of 11 boys, and you know that Joseph was growing up in a pretty dysfunctional home. Or maybe you don't. Let me tell you about his home. And and, and you know, as I tell you about Joseph's family, you probably know that trouble can begin in the family because if you could have picked your family, you would have picked a different one, you know? Listen to Joseph's dysfunctional world. Beside his own mom, he has three stepmoms, and they live in the same house together. It's like the original sister wives right here. Oh, it gets better. Make things worse, he's dad's favorite. Dad loves him and clearly gives him this richly ornamented robe. It's like at Christmas time at their house, and everybody's like going to open the presents, and all the 11 older brothers get etch-a-sketches, and Joseph gets an iPad. So that's some great parenting there, Jacob. Way to go. You know, and, and then you just take it to the next level. Joseph gives him that coat. What does that coat say to all the brothers? This is the kid I love the most. He's my favorite. I'm not even going to make any pretenses about it. This is my favorite kid. You know what that richly ornamented robe says? Who has two thumbs and is not working in the field today? This guy. You know, all these other boys can go out and do manual labor, but the guy who has that coat is not going to go out and do any heavy lifting. Oh, and then it gets better. The brothers hate him for that, but Joseph didn't do himself any favors either, did he? He has this dream of his brothers bowing down to them, to him, and he told them the dream. Really? If you're taking notes this morning and you are a younger sibling, you may want to write this down. Should God ever give you that kind of dream? You may want to keep it to yourself. Just saying. You don't need to share that out loud at dinner. I mean, can you imagine walking into the family room and saying, excuse me, family, excuse me. I need to get your attention, please. Received a vision from God. All the details aren't real clear here, but it's apparent to me even now that that you all are going to bow down to me and worship me. (laughs) That's going to go over real well. Can you imagine your dad? He'd be like, well, thank you very much, but would your highness care to take the trash out? Not going to go well for you. So they hated him even more. You know, he's like, we hate him. We can't stand him. And yet, here's the thing. Maybe it wasn't wise for Joseph to share this, but it was true. You fast forward several years in Joseph's life, this very thing came to pass. Joseph, at 30 years old, is second in command in Egypt. His brothers do bow down to him. 
here he is in his life at 17. He has this dream of what his future is going to look like in his story. And at 30, it actually comes to pass. He is the most, second most powerful person in the world at that point. But at the same time, as good as things were at 17, as great as they were going to be at 30, it was a huge roller coaster ride for Joseph in between. Hands and feet inside the vehicle and inside the roller coaster car because we're about to take a, a long trip down. Joseph is about to discover that trouble in life is inevitable. Uh, you saw in the thing here, J Jacob sent Joseph out to check on his brothers out in the field. And it took him a while to find them because they were moving from field to field, grazing the cattle. When he finally found them, they saw him coming first, and they hatched this scheme as they saw him coming. You find this in verse 19 of chapter 37. So the brothers said to each other, here comes that dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Awesome. Now, if you've ever felt like doing that to one of your siblings, raise your hand right No, just don't raise your hand. You're in church. So this is the ha plan they hatched, but the, all the brothers aren't on the same page with this. Some are like, maybe we shouldn't kill him. But, you know, so it ends up greed trumps murderous envy. They do beat him up, throw him in a cistern. They end up pulling him out and selling him to some slave traders that are going by. And so they end up taking his coat, smearing it with goat's blood, and convincing their dad that a wild animal got a hold of Joseph. And so there's so much grief there as Joseph thinks his, or as uh, Jacob thinks his son is, is dead. And in the meantime, Joseph, 17 years old, is taken to Egypt where the slave traders sell him to a man named Potiphar who's in charge of Pharaoh's bodyguard. So just think of Joseph, maybe how he's feeling in Egypt there. He might have been thinking, God, that's one heck of a plan you got here. I'm loving it. I woke up today and so far I've been beat up by my brothers, thrown into a well, sold to slave traders, auctioned like an animal, and now I'm working for this military dude, probably going to be polishing his boots for the rest of my life. Thank you for sharing your plan with me, God, but if you got any other plans for me, no thank you. You ever had one of those kind of weeks? One of those kind of months, years, or lives? That's not how Joseph responded. In the midst of all this disappointment and trouble he's experiencing, he stayed faithful to God. He didn't complain, as far as we know. Uh, he stayed focused on God. In the midst of all the difficulties and circumstances he was going through, he stayed faithful because he believed that God was with him, that God had given him a vision. So here's what we read in Genesis 39. He's working for Potiphar. You go down to verse 5. It says, uh, as, as Joseph worked for Potiphar, he just did so well that from that time, Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his household and of all that he owned. And the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. It's all he ever had to worry about because Joseph did everything else. Hmm, what am I going to have tonight for supper? Joseph's got everything else handled. Things are looking up. I mean, it's not great to be a slave, but if you're going to be a slave, isn't this the way to do it? So things are looking great. And then Mrs. Potiphar notices Joseph. Look at the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I'll just stop right there. The, the original Hebrew there literally says Joseph was a bearded ginger. He's a good-looking guy. <laughs> Don't laugh at me. Come on. Joseph was well-built, and he's handsome. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Everything takes a, a real wives of Egypt kind of turn here, you know? She notices Joseph. Let's just be honest here. Potiphar's wife was probably a trophy wife. She was probably a very good-looking Egyptian woman. And Joseph is 17 years old, well-built, good-looking, 
He's in a foreign land. And despite the fact that she is probably a very good-looking woman, what she said to Joseph was very crass. It's even more crude than what our English Bibles have done with it. We've made it kind of PG so because we can't read it in church what she really said. How did Joseph respond to this overt seduction? There's nothing subtle about this at all. Joseph refused to be alone with her. He refused to say yes to this obvious invitation that she was giving him. He refused to give in to this. He wouldn't be alone with her. And he's like, man, Potiphar trusts me. I'm not going to do that to him. I'm not going to sin against God in that way. No, I'm not going to do that. Considering the circumstances, this could have gone an entirely different way. Joseph, again, could have felt so resentful over being sold by his brothers in Egypt. He could have said, my family is long gone. God doesn't seem to care about me. Sure, I'll play Magic Mike for Mrs. Potiphar. It's not like anybody cares about me. Might as well have a little fun while I can. But that's not what he did. In the midst of his disappointment, Joseph refused to do that. He stayed faithful. And here's an encouragement for us today that I take away from Joseph's life. Don't let disappointment in your life justify disobedience. So you're mad at God because he hasn't come through for you in the way you think he should and in the time you think he should. Don't allow that to justify disobedience to God. You ever find yourself doing that, though? I, mean, I, I think maybe if we were all honest, we probably have done that at one point in life. Trouble in life's inevitable, but do not let disappointment in life justify disobedience. One area that this happens very frequently in is in the area of, of sexual sin. That's certainly where it showed up in Joseph's story. I don't know, maybe you're single, maybe you're single again. I don't know what your story is, but maybe by now you really felt like you would have found the right someone or the right next someone in your life. And just honestly, you're kind of disappointed about the fact that you haven't. Believe me, I understand this. I get it that not every single person wants to be married, so just hear me on that. But maybe you do. And maybe as you date and as you look for that right next person or as you maybe think you found that person, maybe you have said, I've drawn a line and I'm going to be committed to God's plan for purity. I'm not going to be intimate with the person unless I'm absolutely married to them. But then again, it can be so difficult if you feel like God's kind of let you down in that department. You haven't found the exact right person. And the longer you wait, the easier it is to justify disobedience to God's command and his rule. Listen, don't justify sin by saying God has not come through for me, so I'm just going to take care of myself here. I'm going to just do what I want. You know, this is not just a single-person issue, though. This is not an unmarried issue. You know what's worse than being disappointed and single? Being disappointed and married. Put it another way. The only thing I can think of being th that's worse than being alone and not wanting to be is being married with someone and wishing you were alone. This is not just a single-person issue. Maybe you're married and you can't remember the last time your husband was nice to you, paid attention to you, really listened to you. Maybe you can't remember the last time that your wife was nice to you. Uh, maybe for you and your wife, you think your wife ranks intimacy somewhere between folding clothes and loading the dishwasher. So my encouragement to, to anyone who maybe finds himself in that situation is do not let disappointment justify disobedience. It's so easy to go. My husband doesn't pay attention to me, but there is that guy at work who does. A little harmless flirting probably won't hurt anyone. Don't even open that door. My wife won't pay attention to me. And so maybe you start reconnecting with a, somebody from your romantic past on Facebook just to chat. Don't open that door. Don't let disappointment and trouble in your life justify disobedience. Listen, the Bible is very clear. When we choose to sin, we're choosing to suffer. There is a reason why God has put some things out of bounds. 
And when we cross those boundaries, we are choosing to go into an area where we are going to suffer. See, Joseph's story is not going the way he thought it would, but he did not give in to temptation. Well, Potiphar's wife would not accept that. She was not the kind of woman who would be scorned and spurned. So she takes it to another level. She arranges one day to make sure that all the servants are out of the house. She has Joseph alone by himself in the house, and she thinks, here's my opportunity. She grabs onto his clothes and said, come to bed with me. Joseph is so eager to get out of there and out of that tempting situation that he leaves his cloak with her and goes out of the house, at which point she is furious. He has scorned me for the last time. She starts yelling that Joseph attacked her. She convinces his, her husband Potiphar that Joseph attacked me and I've got his coat to, cloak to prove it here. And Potiphar's furious and he throws Joseph in prison. I have a question for you though. If, if Potiphar is the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, he's literally the captain of the executioners, why did Potiphar throw Joseph in prison? Joseph's a slave. Just, you know, one of the popular ways to kill people back then for, for execution was to bury them alive. Why didn't he just take them out and execute them, do away with them? I think on some level, Potiphar knew that Joseph was more trustworthy than his own wife, but he had to do something to save face. So he didn't kill him, but he threw him in prison. He threw him in jail. And as I read the story, I'm just a little bit concerned here because I look at this and I think, you know, this is two times now that Joseph has not really done anything to deserve what came his way. You get that sense? I mean, as you read through the Bible, there are plenty of people who do things that deserve punishment, right? Adam and Eve, they sinned and they disobeyed God. So many things where people deserve what's coming their way and more. Joseph was not rebellious. Joseph was not disobedient. Joseph was not defiant of God. He wasn't unfaithful. But there is still a lot of disappointment in his story. And you can't just explain it and go, well, he obviously did something he wasn't supposed to. Find it. The closest I can get is that maybe he should not have been so quick to share his dream with his brothers, his dad. See, here's the thing we maybe start to ask in our story. God, I, I can't really link the disappointment I'm going through right now with anything that I've done. Where are you? Why are you allowing this, God, to happen in my life? You ever feel like that? God, why did you let this happen? Why am I going through this? It's a question that maybe Joseph had. Why am I going through this? Where is God as I suffer like this? Well, the Bible does answer that. It answers it very clearly. Genesis 39, and verse 2. Joseph was a slave. Where was God when he was a slave? It's up on the screen. The Lord was with Joseph. How about Genesis 39, 23? Where was God when Joseph was in prison? The Lord was with Joseph. Where is God in the midst of the biggest troubles you face in your life? He's with you. As I see it, I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about how God works. And maybe you think this way on some level. I think people envision God in heaven and he's writing the story of our lives and going, you know, Joseph looks like he's a little bit too happy. Let's hit him with um, his brothers beating him up and rejecting him. Okay, and now Joseph's getting a little bit too comfortable as a slave. Let's hit him with prison. And I think a lot of people view like God sitting there throwing bad things into our lives. Like, like you can't get too comfortable or you did something I didn't like. So there you go. And take that and that and that. That's not how God works. Are there times that God does send bad? We're going to see something next week. God sent 10 plagues to Egypt. Yes, there are times, but I think that's the exception, not the rule. We need to understand our lives in the context of chapter 1 of the story. God created a perfect world. It's up here. It's perfect. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, opened the door to sin, and they let evil come in. 
and they let death come into God's perfect creation. Listen, there is so much bad stuff coming your way that God doesn't have to send any of it. It's just life. It's just what happens in a fallen world. God doesn't need to make it. There's plenty already out there coming your way. And here's the thing. When you think, God, why did you let this happen? You don't understand that maybe God has been standing in front of you. We have no idea how many things God has shielded us from, right? We may not know until heaven how many things God stopped. That You'll have no idea that God protected you from some bad things, that, that you just never even were aware of it. And so, for one thing, we ought to be thankful that God has not allowed more bad things to come into our life. But what about those bad things that do make it our way? What do we do with that? Where's God in that? See, I feel like if God is not standing in front of me and stopping it, that he's standing right beside me and he's saying, Brian, I'm going to allow this to come into your life. And he says that to you. I'm going to allow this to come into your life, but I want you to know that I'm allowing it because I can use this to make something good come of it. God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If God allows something to come into your life, it has his fingerprints on it, but not because he sent it, because he allowed it, and he's going to use it. Now, you need to understand this. God has not neglected you. God has not abandoned you. He has not forgot you. God has never left you. You may feel like you're in a dungeon right now. That does not mean that the Lord has left you. What you need to do, if you're not already, is be honest with the Lord and tell him what's going on in your heart. He, he knows it. He knows what you're thinking. Why not tell him? Why not ask him for help? Ask him for the grace that you need to get through whatever it is you're going through. Ask him to give you an insight into why and what. But even if he doesn't, ask for his help. Well, Joseph prospered as a slave. He prospered as a prisoner, too. He gets in jail. Potiphar's put him there. It wasn't long before he's in charge of the whole prison. Talent rises to the top. Joseph's a gifted leader. What can I say? So pretty soon, he's in charge of the whole prison. And through a strange and bizarre series of events, Joseph even eventually got a get-out-of-jail-free card from Pharaoh himself. Here's how it happened. See, Pharaoh had this weird dream about the seven healthy cows being eaten by seven sick cows. It's like something out of The Walking Dead. And the king has this bizarre dream about the grain. He's like, what in the world is this? And he woke up, and he knew it was something significant. This is like a dream. It's not like just bad Mexican. It's like... This is something I need to get a word from the, somebody about. So he's asking everybody, his wisest advisors, what does this dream mean? I know it means something. And they're like, I don't know. Finally, the king's cupbearer goes, wait a minute. See, the king's cupbearer had been in prison with Joseph two years before. Joseph interpreted one of his dreams for him. And the cupbearer was supposed to go back to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh how great Joseph was, but he forgot. Well, two years later, Pharaoh has this bizarre dream, and the cupbearer goes, I know a guy. There's this guy in prison named Joseph, and he interprets dreams. So Pharaoh calls for him, and you find this in verse, uh, chapter 41, in verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph said, I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So he goes on, and down in verse 29. Seven years, Joseph says, of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. This is the meaning of the dream. But seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. That's the meaning of the dream. Joseph nails it. He hits a grand slam. Then Joseph goes from analysis and interpretation to advice. He says, Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. This is down in verse 33. You need to find a smart guy. 
smartest guy you can find, and you need to put him in charge of agriculture for all of Egypt. Because these seven years, that you just need to store up everything you can from these seven good years. Put everything aside you can. Store it up, build bigger granaries, whatever. Because when those seven horrible years get here, you're going to be able to feed your people. What's more, you're going to be able to sell all the excess grain to everybody else who doesn't have grain. You're going to be wealthier. Pharaoh looks at Joseph, and he says, you know what? And he looks at his advisors, and he says this down in verse 37. Sounds like a great plan. Is there anyone wiser than this man, Joseph, standing in front of me right now? Really? Joseph, I want you to make it so. I want you to enact the plan that you've described to me. You are in charge. You are the deputy only to me. You are in charge of everything. Everyone answers to you. I will only retain the throne. I'm the only one who will have more power than you in the kingdom of Egypt. And there it is, from dungeon to prime minister of Egypt in one hour. And everything happened just like Joseph said it would. The dream came to pass just like God described. Seven awesome years followed by seven horrible years. And here's where we begin to see the wisdom of God. See, God is playing chess, not checkers. Way back when Joseph is still living at home and before that, God knew that this weather pattern was coming 15 years in the future more than that. God knew that Joseph's brothers were going to sell him into slavery into Egypt. God puts all these pieces together and says, I can use that to save Abraham's family. See, my, my family, this nation that's going to come about through Abraham's descendants is in danger of starving to death, but I can make all these events work together to save them from starvation. So you go back to Canaan now. There's the, the famine is on, and in Canaan, where the rest of Joseph's family lives, they're starving to death. They've got plenty of money, but they don't have any food. Jacob hears word that there's plenty of food in Egypt, so he sends all the brothers to Egypt to go buy some grain. They come in to the person who's in charge of selling the grain. And we read this in chapter 42 and verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold the grain to all its people. So Joseph's brothers arrived. They didn't recognize Joseph. And they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Just like Joseph dreamed so many years before. I love it when a plan comes together, don't you? God knew all this would happen. Joseph eventually revealed himself to his brothers. He said, I'm the one that you sold into slavery. They're like, oh my gosh, you're going to kill us. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. They apologized for threatening to kill him and selling him to slavery. Joseph's like, it's all forgiven. They brought the whole family to Egypt. They were all reunited there, and everything was great. And Joseph had an awesome perspective about it all. This is in Genesis 45 and verse 5. It says, Now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And he said this in Genesis 50. Joseph said to his brothers, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done the saving of many lives. You know, one of the most helpful things that I can encourage you to do in the midst of trouble is this. Zoom out and get a bigger perspective of God's story that he's telling. Don't get so focused on the narrow slice of life that you're experiencing right now that you can't zoom out and see the story that God is telling and put yourself in that context. I do this all the time for myself when I remember to, and it's so helpful. If I'm in a problem or I'm in trouble or whatever, I zoom out and say, what will this look like an hour from now, if it's a little thing? What will this look like a week from now? What will this look like a month from now, when I'm all through it? A year from now? 
Sometimes you have to zoom way out and say, well, what would this look like at the end of my life when I'm reflecting on everything I've lived? Maybe you even need to zoom out to the big picture and say, what will this look like 500 years from now in eternity when I realize the story that God was writing with my life and the way he used that trouble that I went through to make something good happen? You see, as we zoom out, we see the bigger picture. Maybe your story has a chapter titled Unemployed. Maybe your story has a chapter called sickness or divorced or disappointed or rebellious or you have a chapter in your life called wanderings or any other neglected, abused, any number of things. What could God do with that chapter in your life if you would just submit to him and say, God, I want you to work all this out for good? When you trust God and you yield to God, even in the midst of your disappointment and your trouble, God restores your story and he redeems your story. To see what you're going through right now is one chapter in the big picture that God's telling, the big story. You know, life never really goes like we think it will. It's funny like that. It just goes in different directions. And, and I can't on my own handle all the challenges that come my way and neither can you. But let God write your story. We know that God works everything for good. Let him do that for you. I'm telling you, God's already written the end of the story. It started with perfection, and it's going to end with perfection. And what God looks at every single one of you is he says this, I want you to be there. At the end of all things, when I restore everything to the way it was before, when everything is brought back to its former glory and perfection, I want you to be there. So as we come to our time of invitation you know, I just have to remind you and I have to remind myself, some of our trouble that we experience in life, it's of our own doing. We bring trouble into our lives. The Bible is very clear that, that when we sin, we suffer. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're firmly convinced that you need to have your hands at 10 and 2 on the steering wheel of your life and it's got you nowhere that's good, but in pride you just insist on having control of your life. Maybe this morning's the day you need to say, God, I'm willing to take my hands off and let you start driving for a while. God, I'm, I'm willing to let you maybe redefine my story and direct me in a new way. And God does that. He loves people who are far from him. He loves people who have written all the wrong things into their book up to this point because he can do something about it if you'll simply ask for his help. The Bible says while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious and against God, that God sent his son Jesus Christ and that Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for good people. He died for us. So this morning as we have this invitation time, as we go through communion, take that as a time to say, God, what do I need to do next? Maybe today is the day you say, God, you're in control of my story now. You need to repent, turn your life over to God and be baptized. Maybe you need to join the story that God's telling through this church here. We're a new church and it's very exciting here. Maybe you need to put your, your families and yourself here and say, I want to be a part of what's going on. So w- would you stand with me right now And as we sing, as we go through communion time, will you just ask God to help you know what it is that you need to do next? Let's pray right now. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for putting the example of Joseph in the Bible. Um, You know, so many things he went through. Maybe we can all relate to say, "I, I don't know that I deserve this. Maybe sometimes we say, I do know I deserve this and maybe even more. But Father, I know you loved us with an everlasting love. I know that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us. I pray that we would learn to say yes to you in the life that you are leading us into. I pray that you would help us to experience joy even in the midst of the most difficult times of our lives. I pray you'd help us to get an eternal perspective to realize that 
these things that we're going through now, they're just light and momentary troubles compared to the glory you're going to reveal in us. I pray that you would give strength and encouragement to everyone who's here this morning. Uh, Give us humble hearts. Help us to trust you. Help us to tell good stories with our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.